Hi everyone, I'm Sam Callen. Welcome to this podcast. This podcast is an audio version of a monthly conference call that is done for National Governing Body Coach Educators and Developers here in the United States. And I've made this an audio version only because so many people consume uh, podcast information on the go on their daily commute or while exercising. So I want an audio version of this. If you want to see the video version, in the show notes there's a link to the YouTube page that has the original uh, monthly call. So with that, I'm going to go to uh, this month's call, and thank you for joining us. Hey everyone, welcome to this month's uh, Coach Developer Conference call uh, from uh, U.S. Center for Coaching Excellence. And I, my guest today will be Christy Erdahl. She's uh, the chair of the Department of Kinesiology, I think. We're going to check on that and make sure I got the title right <laughs> at Colorado College uh, here in lovely Colorado Springs. So uh, she is just down the road from me uh, and uh, in our lovely town here. So a couple of announcements before we get started. Get my mouse to work here. Uh, most of you probably know the recordings are available there on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play. I, uh, I, every time I beg people to subscribe and leave a review, and uh, that really helps other people uh, connect to the podcast. Perhaps it then pops up as if you're listening to John O'Sullivan's podcast, then this will pop up as a recommendation and uh, try to get the word out. A uh, few things about upcoming events is uh, the iCoach Kids EU. Uh, as I mentioned in the call with Sergio Lara Bercial last month, they have a uh, MOOC course that's now open. It just opened, um, I think, on Friday, and it's Developing Effective Environments for Youth Sport. I encourage everyone to check that out. Uh, the conversation with Sergio got me really excited about some of the things that iCoach Kids is doing, and so that's available now. Uh, and also, for those of you who are going to listen to this later, sorry you missed this party, but the USOC ADM and Youth Sports Symposium is beginning on December the 11th, and uh, most of you, hopefully on my mailing list, received the announcement about the pre-conference networking tonight at Red Lake Brewing Company here in Colorado Springs. Just a little chance for folks to get together and, uh, and do a little socializing before we um, go into the formal conference on Tuesday afternoon. And then my always plug here for the USCC Coach Developer Summit uh, coming up again here in Colorado Springs, uh, June 17th through 19th, and uh, registration is now open for that, and you can uh, register and find more information at the uscoachexcellence.org website. I've got two conference calls in the works for January and February, and once I have those nailed down, I will uh, let you know. Pretty excited about both the calls. I'm just not sure who is going to be in January and who's going to be in February at this point, and uh, so stay tuned for that. And as always, if you are uh, live and you're online, uh, if you want to chat during the or send me a question or comment during the uh, presentation, if you hit the little chat bubble up there, and uh, if not, I've got the Q&A queue open. I'll see your question there. If you, uh, if you punch in the proper buttons, the, the pound six, then I'll give you a chance to answer questions at the end. And with that, I'm going to stop rambling now and uh, bring Christy Erdahl on. Christy is the uh, author of a new book that's out, 
the adulteration of children's sports. And I'm sorry, she is the psychology department chair at Colorado College. I don't know why I had kinesiology in my head. Sorry. Well, you know what? You got you're you got a, a hybrid there because I'm a professor in the psychology department and I'm chair of human biology and kinesiology. So <laughs> it's a little that's, complicated. That's where I got that. Then well, I don't feel quite so bad that's that right. I just pulled something out of thin air. All right. Well, exactly. As you tell, no, it, it, there was some basis in fact. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's good. I'm sometimes I'm concerned that things I say don't have a basis in fact. So uh, with that, as you tell, Christy's <laughs> on the line here, and her her research interests include concussion, superstition, and stereotyping. And uh, and actually, the superstition one is the one that first brought you on my radar screen. I heard an interview That's with right. you um, probably a couple of years ago now on some research mm -hmm. that you and one of your students did on uh, kind of superstition and um, also on, uh, I think it was, it had to do with, what was that, the, the golf experiment that, the student did that yeah there was it was um it was on sports superstition and we created an in in lab way of assessing superstition which is usually of course just out there in the natural environment and and so we built a, a basically a golf putting range in one of our classrooms and we created an experiment where uh, the students who came in uh, did a difficult putt or a hard putt, and we assessed their superstition by whether they used the same color ball That's after right. a made putt. And so, yeah, so it was a, a quantitative way of assessing superstition and came up with some really interesting uh, results that low-skilled golfers like myself, for instance, would only have superstitious behavior on the uh, easy putt, because that's the only one they even had a chance of getting. And the high-skilled golfers, uh, like other people, <laughs> they uh, would use superstitious behavior on the difficult putt, because there was the, the easy putt was, of course, too easy for them. It was a no-brainer. Uh, but the difficult putt still had some variability in it. And so, so we found this beautiful interaction between skill level and superstitious behavior. So that was really fun. Very neat and very fun. Um, but we brought you on talk about your book because you know everybody wants to get their book out there and to have uh, you know people read it and and you and I talked about this when I first interviewed you for the other podcast I did on this it was right I, you had notes and things everywhere and you had a draft or something so it's kind of fun to see this thing mm -hmm. come to life it, from my end I can't imagine what it was like on your end to you know oh that sure process. <laughs> it's yeah it's a really long process. This is uh, my first book. Usually I publish academic articles and journals, which are uh, taxing, but they're typically quite shorter. And so um, I'm synthesizing basically all of the research conducted on children's sports up through 2017 was, um, qu was quite a task. And yes, you did see the notes in my office and uh, all of the binders and things like that. And now finally, it's, uh, it's culminated into a text, um, as you mentioned, The Adulteration of Children's Sports. And the post-colon title is Waning Health and Well-Being in the Age of Organized Play. And it's published by Lexington, which is a division of Roman and Littlefield Publishing. And they've been fabulous. In, in publishing the text. Well, and, and two things with that, and I'll put a link in the show notes, but you have offered a uh, publisher's discount to to folks, and I will yes. have a link to that. So thank you, and, and thank Lexington for that. And also, uh, yes. your publisher has a, uh, a deal with the U.S. Center for Coaching Excellence. They are working on developing 
some content, some books on uh, writing on sports, and uh, I'll put a link into more information if anybody's interested in, in doing that. And, uh, and and that was just happenstance, to be honest with you. I knew about this with the mm -hmm. USCCE, and I saw that. I never put them together. So uh, so there's a good synergy here, if if I can use that right. you know, somewhat overused Absolutely. word right now. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, let's get into this. <laughs> but I do feel like you, yeah, you followed you followed this uh, this path when you know during the first uh, podcast interview you saw all the notes and now it's come to fruition. So it's a nice it's a nice uh, full circle moment here. It is. There's some closure to this. Great. Well, let's let's talk about mm -hmm. the book. You said you, it includes research up to 2017. So yeah. what inspired you and motivated you to write a book about mm -hmm. you know this this topic? Right. I think that's a, actually a, probably one of the most interesting questions because I am, you know, I've been a professor here at Colorado College. It's my 23rd year. I'm a clinical psychologist by training and a neuro, clinical neuropsychologist by specialty. So my only forays really into, or my beginning forays into sport interests were uh, concussion testing. And uh, I was a college athlete myself, so of course I had inherent personal interest in sport in general, uh, but, but concussion testing was really how I entered in. Then my students um, oftentimes are, were athletes as well, and they wanted to do their theses in, in sport-related things. I developed a sports psychology class, which here at a liberal arts college is not a performance enhancement class. It's looking at basically life through the lens of sport. And so I have this sports psychology class going, and then I spend you know, one day on the block plan, which is about a week in a semester on youth sports. So I'm up on the research, but not necessarily um, a specialist. And then my kids, who are now grown, um, started uh, children's sports. And I looked at the literature, and I looked at what was happening on the ground, and the Venn diagrams weren't overlapping at all. And I was really kind of shocked at, at what was being said and done uh, on the ground in children's sports and then looking at the literature and, and seeing so much of it, in fact, antithetical to the health and well-being of children. And so it, basically what I started doing was kind of going back to the literature and saying, all right, well, maybe there's some disconnect here. And the more I looked, the more I realized that I was in kind of a unique position. I have access to all, as a, as a faculty member, I have access to all the research in uh, physiology and psychology and sociology. And I felt kind of a responsibility to put it all in one place uh, for academics, for parents, for coaches, for uh, sport administrators, probably the linchpin group uh, in this, to say, okay, what's happening on the ground is not supported by research and uh, for the health and well-being of children. And so if you are interested in supporting the health and well-being of children, here's your Bible. Here's everything you need to know to say what, what is factual and what is, and what is not factual because there's so many myths, as you well know, out there about children's sports that, uh, that people who perhaps are motivated by financial interests will tell you about specialization and about early training and travel teams and all of that, and none of it has support in data. Well, and I, I, the, the question I want to start with is, how did this all get started? How did this become an industry? Yeah, that's, that's really an interesting question that I found 
um, quite compelling to try to answer. So I looked into, and this is really a sociological question more than anything else, because how does a society, which is what we have done, change where a generation ago, um, now I'm, I'm in my 50s and you're a little bit younger, but, uh, but we played outside, we organized ourselves, we went to the sandlot or the playground, we brought our own bats, we made our own rules, there were no uniforms, you know, uh, all of those things um, was a generation ago. And now we're in a completely different place where that sort of sandlot play, independent play, hardly exists at all. And what I was very intentional in titling this book, The Adulteration of Children's Sports, of course, for the double entendre of the word adulteration. Mm -hmm. So adult, adulting the sport, but adulteration means um, basically making weaker and, uh, and, and dissipating. And so there's a lot of things that my generation, earlier generations, learned through play uh, and even if we organized ourselves, organized play, but children's organized play, that the kids of this generation are not getting. And so um, why? Okay. So our generation now as parents are acting very differently from, from the way our parents did. Uh, you know, we were basically kicked out of the house, don't come back till dinner, you know, or the lights go on or whatever, mm -hmm. you exactly. know, over the summer. And and, and now um, there is not, there's hardly a handful of parents you can find who would be like that. Everyone has to be supervised. So I looked into the sociological literature and said, why is that? And it seemed like in the late 80s, early 90s, the advent of play dates and um, safety concerns about children started rising. And you might say, why? Why is that? Well, one theory is that um, the media representation of things like abductions and bullying and things like that um, got more and more media play, uh, more and more channels on the TV at that time, more and more cable, then it was the Internet, and then uh, information that was always more local now became more global. And so uh, safety issues, concerns rose, even though safety problems didn't rise. And, uh, and, and so parents figured more and more that they need adults to supervise their children. They don't want their children getting hurt. They don't want their children getting abducted or maltreated. They don't want their children you know, having negative experiences. Now, all of those, the, you know, the abductions and, and even injuries are, were very low frequency events. Uh, and in fact, many would argue that they're higher frequency now that more adults are in more contact with children. Um, so, so some of these have been misguided problems. But, um, but in fact, it seems like the safety issue rises to the surface whenever parents are asked why they prefer adult supervised or organized play over letting their children be independent, roam free, set their own rules, you know, and and uh, and play with each other. That, that that's fascinating. And by the way, you and I are very much contemporaries, but I appreciate the fact that you think I'm younger than you are. And, um, <laughs> and I grew up in that same sort of environment. Of the joke at my house was be home at at uh, dark thirty, which was thirty minutes after it became dark. And okay, right, right. You know, so you could find your way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that was just you know. Down part of it, and uh, okay, so you know, parents started becoming more um, started organizing their kids' lives a little bit more, and, and I 
think that everybody mm-hmm. knows the stories and probably everybody knows the parents who are, you know, just kind of at this oh, point yeah. even in some cases glorified Uber drivers and who are right. you know, hauling kids all around and, and have to have every minute of their kids' days organized. Then out of that, where did this uh, – maybe if you can't talk about the development of the of the club sports and how they became so much more prominent now than uh, – in my small town of 25, 30,000 people – there were no club sports. It was all recreation mm-hmm. department, boys and girls clubs, um, you mm-hmm. know, and then the high school, of course, you know, that division, much, much like everywhere. But wh- where did this club system all of a sudden begin to really explode? And you know what's interesting? When you look at the research there, because there's research involved in this, where did all this stuff come from? Um, there's a lot of finger pointing. Parents are finger pointing at the club sports, and the club sports are finger pointing at the parents. <laughs> and if you think about it, they're probably both right. Uh, the club, the the parents, uh, you know, if you have greater concerns for safety and you want adults running your your children's lives, including yourself. Um, it's hard for parents to understand what the goals of children's sports were for children, okay? So it's hard to remember what you were like at 5 or 7 or 9 or even 12 to say, why did I go out and play? You went out and play, play to play. You didn't go out and play to win. You, right. you went out to play and get exercise and run around and have friendships and negotiate things and do all of that. And so now when parents are running this play, if you will, quote unquote, their goals are, are what they see sport as as adults. Uniforms and structure and rules and, uh, and winners and losers, of course. And so that, when you, when you get parents trying to dictate children's play, by definition, adults can't put themselves back into their ch- childhood bodies and say, why did I do this? Or their childhood minds, why did I do this? And they're seeing sport through the lens of how adults see sport as winners and losers and rigid and organized and rules and you have to do it right and you have to throw it the right way and things like that. So on that hand, on that one hand, when adults parents became interested in organizing their children, uh, just the, the cognitive disconnect of what play is plays a role. And now you have, of course, in this beautiful entrepreneurial capitalistic society, you have people who are more than willing to look at those safety concerns and say, we will alleviate those safety concerns for you parents. Send your children to us and we will give them a safe space and we will teach them a sport and then we will throw all the myths of sportsmanship and self-esteem and all of that stuff that actually doesn't have much data to support it uh, and we'll throw all of those words in too and we will take care of your children. And the parents are saying, great, fabulous. Um, Are you going to have leaks? Are you going to have cute uniforms that I can take pictures of? Are you going to teach my kid the right rules of this game? Again, not understanding necessarily what play before the age of 13 or prepubescent play is supposed to be. And so, the, of course, the people who are running these organized um, sports uh, arenas are saying, well, of course we're going to do that. If that's what you want, that's what we'll mm-hmm. do. And there's a lot of uh, recreational professionals who say, we know we shouldn't be doing that, but that's what the parents want, and that's what they're going to pay for. And, uh, and so I think of this sometimes, and I write this in, in one of my last chapters, that wouldn't it be nice if the 
recreational professionals, sport administrators, took the opportunity to have teachable moments to the parents at this point and say, you know, we could give your child a mini professional version of sport, (laughs) or we could give them safe venues to play and organize themselves and play tag and give them things to hide under and, uh, you know, things like that. So I liken it to um, when in the, in the recent decades when pediatricians were, were pressured by parents to give their children antibiotics, you know, for colds and oh, ear infections yes. and things that are likely virus. I liken it to that where pediatricians took the pressure and, and over-prescribed antibiotics, and then we got into a really nasty place where we have you know, drug-resistant bacteria and things like that. But now the pediatricians have taken back a little bit of the power, tried to turn that ship around and say, no, that's not good for your child, even if you think it is. And I liken it to the same thing, where recreational professionals and sport administrators to say, you know what, you say you want this, but that's not good for your child. How about we provide this instead. Mm-hmm. That's where I'm at. I, I think that's interesting, and I, I do. I think there's a lot of the rec sports folks out there who, who do get it, and, and I think it kind of goes back to this. You talk about you know, the entrepreneur and capitalism part is that you know, within reason, that rec sports person is going to get their salary. You know, if, if 20 kids come out and play, or 200 kids come out and play in the soccer league, they're going to get paid. If if 2,000 kids come out, they're still going to get paid. So they're, mot- they're mm-hmm. motivated by going, I got other – then you've got to make budget. You've got to do all that stuff I think we all get. But, okay, right. I, you know, I, so my goals can be very different. It's not trying to get the kid, you know, to do this 12 months out of the year because when they go over and play some other sport, that's money going to some other club coach or, or whatever. And I – yeah, I think mm-hmm. there's issues with that where when I grew up there were – I mean, I'm sure there are club sports out there. I, you know, just reading historically, I know it, but certainly not in my small town. Um, there were not. No, no, and there weren't very many. Um, there weren't very many, for sure. No. That that has uh, increased exponentially with some of the myths that have increased, uh, where people will, uh, I, you know, to be honest, when I've been writing this book and you know over over several years, and every time I mentioned it to someone, there was a story. That came back to uh-huh. me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, people on the street, people at conferences, um, people not related to sport issues at all would say, "Oh, I know a kid who uh, was told that they need to do this, and then they got, uh, uh, you know, this injury and and the elbow surgery, and you know, all of that." So there's a hundreds of thousands of stories out there right. about how early early specialization and all-year participation is problematic. And what I put in the book is all the data that says you're absolutely right, parents, anecdotes. You're absolutely right that these myths that children need to participate early and pick a sport, it's it's completely unfounded. And the myths of year-round participation, completely unfounded, in fact, completely antithetical to the health of the children. Yeah. Well, that, that's a great um, segue into my next question is, what are some of the negative outcomes that you found in this adulteration process? Right, right. Well, that, that is chapter three, if you're interested. It's called The Negative Impact of Organized Sport on Children. And, and the subtitle is this, when adults get it wrong, 
sport leads with trophies and pressure and ends with dropout. Okay, so that's the, the subtitle of, of Chapter 3. And what, what really I go through is the literature involved in looking at um, given that adults are, are organizing sport for children, what are the problems that we're seeing now that we didn't see when children organize themselves. So that's the comparison. Okay? And what we're seeing is, in fact, poorer motor skill development, poorer social skills, less independence, less learning conflict resolution, not surprising if the adults are doing all the conflict resolution for you, um, more extrinsic motivation, that is, I want to do it for the trophy and the ribbon and the and the accolades rather than I want to have fun with it. Um, nutritional problems. You know, if we're, if we're adultifying, uh, and that was your word I remember from a couple of years ago. Uh, Thank if we're you. adultifying yeah. children's sports, yeah, I'll give you credit on that. Uh, if we're adultifying children's sports, we are bringing the con concession stand in um, with the hot dogs and the french fries and things that we would do at a Major League Baseball game, and we're not showing children um, appropriate nutrition for athletes, all of that is accelerating. Um, there's actually, uh, in this chapter, there were two places where I had to sit back and go, holy smokes, because these other things that I just mentioned, if you really think about um, the generational difference in children's sports, you think, okay, clearly they have less independence if adults are, are doing everything for them. Um, clearly, they're not going to learn conflict resolution if the adults are, are doing everything for them. Clearly, if we're, we're feeding them with trophies and ribbons, that's going to be a problem. And then there were two other places where I kind of sat back and, and went, holy. Um, one was having lower moral development. And that was a series of studies um, uh, by Bredemeyer and her uh, colleagues that looked at uh, kids who played organized sports, um, particularly boys and particularly contact sports, but it wasn't just limited to that, where their moral development was lagging um, from, uh, when compared with kids who didn't play sports. And, it was, and if you thought about it, some very interesting theorizing can come out of that, is if you are relying on outside people like officials to tell you what is right and wrong from an early age, that probably has an impact on where you think you're responsible for your own moral actions. And I, I, you know, that was wow. a really compelling, yeah, I mean, think about it. It makes perfect sense even though we don't like to really think about it that way. And you know, sport, you can have discussions, and my students and I have discussions all the time about whether you know, framing a pitch in baseball is ethical or not ethical, whether, whether calling, if you're calling uh, the tennis balls out on, it, uh, on your own, you know, rather than having an official there, you know, do you try to hedge, do you try to, you know. And a lot of the students will say, well, hey, if the ref didn't see it, it wasn't wrong. You know, that sort of thing. These are, you know, these are college students that I'm talking to. And yeah. so, uh, you know, that's what, sport, oh, that's what sport teaches you, I'm sorry to say, in, yeah. in many of the sports where um, if, if the official didn't see it, it didn't happen. And that was jarring to me that what we might be losing in a generation where officials are telling you what is right and wrong 
and you're trying to push the envelope or push the boundary, uh, that there might be a moral dilemma later on in how you, you act or react in other, in other situations. Uh, well, so that was, that was one. Yeah, go ahead. Well, no, I was going to say it, it's fascinating because this made me think of when I was a kid. Again, free play, we, we made up games. Mm -hmm. you know, right. We just made crap up. I mean, it was, there was no right. name for this. We just kind of hit, we adjusted rules depending on how many people we had and also how, many, how old mm -hmm. we were. We, if we had a little kid, we mm -hmm. adjusted the rules because the eight-year-old right. was there when we were 12. But the other thing that jumped out at me, and, and even though the odds are that he would never hear this, I won't use his name, but we had a kid in our neighborhood who he, he he cheated, or at least he wasn't yeah. very good at like when we played basketball. You know, if you breathed on him, he'd call foul on you, kind of thing. Right, right, right. Well, right. Mm -hmm. our our punishment for him was we just didn't invite him to play. Exactly. And, and he and and, and one that of my was other natural friends, feedback. It was, and one of my other friends told him, said, "Why didn't you guys call me?" He goes, "We don't like playing with you, man. I mean, it's just you know, mm -hmm. you're you know, you're not." You're not playing the game. You're, 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 you're. Well, I don't think we called him a cheater or anything like that. And he wasn't really cheating. It's just mm -hmm. like, if you don't do that, you're no fun to play with, and you're ostracized. In which case, you're no fun to play with. You're no that's fun it. to play you're with. You're no fun to play with. Yeah. Because that's or, what play is supposed to be. Yeah, I had not thought about. I hadn't. I hadn't thought about that particular person probably in years. Um, with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that that's an interesting one. I mean, and we see that. We talk about that with that conflict resolution and that and part of it learning mm -hmm. it and now at some point in time as an adult if you don't learn that somewhere and a lot of us learned it in sport then how are you going to manage in the mm -hmm. in the workplace or when they get to college and there's conflicts with roommates right and, and it's not like sport is the only place where you can learn conflict right, resolution absolutely. but i think the replacement of children learning it themselves and seeing adults do it for them mm -hmm. okay that's more the problem um it's not like you know kids who didn't play sport never learned conflict resolution but it's the replacement of you doing it yourself with adults doing it for you on the athletic field and that's a difference um, because you can learn conflict resolution in the orchestra and the yeah. you know whatever else, um, but it's a matter of who's doing the conflict resolution, and and who's giving that feedback, that natural feedback to your childhood friend saying we don't want to play with you because you you uh, don't have the same uh, rules in your head that we do, and we're trying to tell you that this is how we're playing it here on the sandlot, and mm -hmm. giving you that feedback so you can be part of the game. And what you said before about having little kids and older kids play together, uh, that's not dangerous. <laughs> that's actually uh, older kids learn to be gentler with little kids and give them handicaps and do-overs and whatever else yeah. we want to call that. That's about learning um, what we would call in psychology theory of mind, um, w putting myself into that five-year-old's shoes. That five-year-old wants to play, but he can hardly lift up the bat. How are we going to incorporate him in the game? Mm -hmm. And putting yourself into the five-year-old's shoes and say, how can he be part of the game? Can he be a pinch runner? Can he be, you know, having that sort of ability to stretch cognitively as an older child to bring the game in to, to other kids. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and 
you know, vice versa. So I think all of those things that you are talking about anecdotally have research support where if you are just um, playing with kids who are within a few months of your own age and um, all are being instructed on how to do things, there is no independent thinking um, right. you know, because of the coach, uh, and, and all the plays are called by the coach, and all oh. the defenses are called by the coach. You know, you're just a pawn. And that there are a lot of research, uh, researchers who use that term very intentionally, that children are just pawns of adult coaches. And if, yeah. again, if you think about it, it's hard to argue against that. Well, and, and my take on this too is I, I was a college administrator in the in the late 80s and early 90s, and uh, then left that world and and uh, you know pursued this area, and and I, I still have friends who are in higher education administrators, and one of their constant complaints is, my God, these kids, they they can't solve. They're always running to an adult, and yes. you know. Yeah. You know, by definition, you're a college kid. You're an adult at this point. You know, right. And stuff. Right. And, and so they're running to them, or or in the workplace, they're running to you know HR to whine about the person who's you know cubicle next to them. They're playing their music too loud, and it's like, well, mm -hmm. I learn. I would just walk around and you know tell Connor, hey, can you you know turn your music mm -hmm. down a little bit or something like that, but. Um, right. And, and somewhere I learned that. No one told me just to right. go up and do it, but it was innate. But now it seems like, and maybe it's some of this, that the adults are so quick to jump in and resolve conflicts. And, and that could happen in the band right. or the orchestra as well. And yeah, you take that ability away from that when the kid is you know, let loose in the world, and I would even consider college to be part of that world, of learning that conflict mm -hmm. resolution and how do I deal with other people and and, and people who right. have a different outlook on life. Well, that's I always listen to music wild. Yeah. Um, yeah. I didn't realize it was impacting. And, and you know, to way. be honest. Yep. Yeah, your friend who who was playing by a different set of rules. Wouldn't it be interesting to sit down and say, why do you think that's a, you know, why do you think that's a foul when nobody else does? You know, yeah. like uh, you know, having that conversation. And maybe that's a little heady for eight-year-olds, but yeah. <laughs> um, but but there was a. There's another another associated thing here too that I found. This was the second of the of the findings that kind of jarred me when I was looking at the negative outcomes. One was um, having, and this is not surprising, having less tactical creativity in sport. Okay, oh, so yeah. if, again, if a coach is telling you what to do and when to do it, you don't develop a sense of the game yourself, and that seems like, okay, that seems obvious. If, if you're not allowed to free play and figure out new creative ways to kick this ball and hit this and, and run around here, then of course your tactical creativity is going to diminish. But some of this research followed these kids, athletes, into adulthood and also found that their creativity in other venues was also decreased. So wow. the more they played organized sport, the less creative they were in other venues, okay, in other tests of creativity that have nothing mm -hmm. to do with sport. And one of them even calculated out to an algorithm, which, was, <laughs> I, you know, which I love as a quantitative person. Not many people love that. But an algorithm of how many hours in their childhood lives would they have had to increase in free play to get a uh, consistent increase in creativity as an adult on these tests. 
And one of them was I think an hour, an hour, an hour and a half increase in free play as a child would have predicted an increase in creativity as an adult. You know, when, when you get thousands of data points, you can look at um, things very quantitatively, and right. you can make those uh, quantitative predictions. So I thought that was really fascinating. Well, in, 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 in the sports arena, uh, there, uh, you know, at least we have this idea, and you may say, oh yeah, there's research on this, and I'm just not aware of it, of players who play a variety of sports. And, and you and I were talking about this before I started recording about Patrick Mahomes, the the Kansas City Chief mm -hmm. quarterback who is who's just, you know, he's kind of taken the league by storm in a lot of ways. Well, he was a right. multi-sport athlete. He was a very good basketball player in high school. And, mm -hmm. you know, people who've watched him more than I have talk about his reaction to things. You know, they go, God, he, he sometimes looks like a basketball player out there. And it's like, well, he was. And he, he carried yeah. that over in that creativity of, of the agility, you know, that responding to a stimulus and acting appropriately, well, he had m many more dimensions to do that in very different areas as well. And the, you know, basketball is in such a confined space that you you learn that stuff, and then you put them on a football field, and all of a sudden, you know, it's you know, it's wide open space. But they're, they're, you can sometimes see that in that creativity, or even just they're playing around for a little bit and messing around, and um, you know. And doing things, I I played tennis as a as a kid, and we would mess around. I would you know mess around with shots you know behind the back or between the legs. I saw somebody do it at mm -hmm, Wimbledon, mm -hmm. you know, and stuff. And but at some point in time, I I pulled one of those off in a match. I I, I didn't yeah. think about it. No coach ever told me, hey, today right. we're going to practice your between the leg shot, right? And stuff, right, right. But I did it. I because think that's yeah. Moved that, around. That's exactly that's exactly right. And you know, you can have for every Patrick Mahomes, um, or there was data on the um, the uh, the New England Patriots who won the Super Bowl over the Atlanta Falcons. Okay, a, a monumental oh. game. Uh, oh, I think it was something like ninety-seven. I'm sorry about that. Um, <laughs> the, the, but it was something like 97% of them were multi-sport athletes through high school. Okay, yeah. um, they did not specialize in football. Um, uh, a study on professional baseball players said the same thing. Uh, Olympians, Olympian medalists. I mean, there's been research on not just Olympians, you know, but Olympian medalists, international medalists. Um, they come to their sport later than people who don't medal, and they were participating in multiple sports for longer. And that means usually through 15, 16, oh. age 15 and 16. Okay, so when I say later, I'm not saying eight. You know, I'm saying 15 and 16. Um, and these, and this is documented. This isn't... Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, this is this is not a fly-by-night finding. This is so consistent. In fact, one of the most consistent things that go completely against what some people out there uh, will say that you have to specialize early. Absolutely not. It's completely counter to your success if you do, and um, and of course playing all year round and things like that. But what you mentioned too was the. Um, the cognitive flexibility that you get from playing two different sports. And sometimes it's obvious if you play badminton and volleyball, you know, they're, they're kind of, they're both net sports, they both have the same strategy, things like that. But if you play soccer and volleyball, if you play, then there's, there's other more, um, 
I guess, disparate cognitive connections that you can make about space on the field and spacing yourself out and being prepared for where someone is going to hit the ball. Um, all of those things benefit you in the long run for, of course, having fun, hitting, hitting a ball through mm -hmm. your legs. How can that not be fun? Uh, and, and also for well, actually... Well, I, I can tell you one way it's not, but we won't get into that. Oh, well, yeah. yes. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that's why you got, I guess you have to practice. <laughs> yeah, that should be challenging. No, good. Yeah, I, I think this um, – and, and again, when we, were, when we were talking about this, how do we combat this? We, we know yeah. this. A lot of high-level athletes will, are on their soapbox about this. Kobe Bryant at Project Play talked about it. He grew up mm -hmm. playing soccer because he grew up uh, mm -hmm. part of his life in Europe. And you know, every mm -hmm. kid plays soccer in Europe. But playing soccer right. may just mean going out and you're kicking the ball around the street with your friends or mm – -hmm. Or, or not even a ball sometimes. It's whatever you make that mm -hmm. is sort of like a soccer ball that doesn't even bounce normally. Wow, what do you learn in that when you learn how to handle bad hops on a ball mm -hmm. that's made out of Oh, tape sure. Or whatever it may be. But, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, we, we made those as kids. Um, mm -hmm. How do we combat that when right. – I said this earlier, but beforehand – I. I, I'm troubled by the appeal to authority where just because somebody has a name that we automatically think they know what they're talking about. Right. But, but so much I of know, what we have – I know, but you know that works. I know it does. <laughs> that's, why I, that's why my argument is, well, let's combat their you – know, the club coach who's telling the kid um, you know, he needs to play baseball year-round if he wants to do this, and he's you mm -hmm. know, 10 years old. And, mm -hmm. and you know, club coach, maybe he played in college – that was the peak of it, maybe even high school mm -hmm. in some cases, and one case I know. And then, and then I watched John Smoltz, Hall of Fame pitcher from the Atlanta Braves. I grew up a Braves fan, so Smoltz is near and dear mm -hmm. to my heart. And during his Hall of Fame acceptance speech, he basically said, stop playing baseball year-round. And not just right. for pitchers, right. which tends to get the focus because of the Tommy John surgery stuff. But, right. you know, stop. Right. Okay, I got the baseball coach topped out in junior college, and I got John Smoltz. It's like, why are you not listening mm -hmm. to John Smoltz if you're going to rely on the authority right. of this person? I'm going right. with John Smoltz. He's seen more baseball than I will ever see if I keep watching the rest yes. of my life. Yeah. So anyway, how, yeah. how, do we, I think, well, how do we do that? Yeah, how do we turn the ship around? How do we solve around? this problem? I think, um, you know, to be honest, 10 years ago, John Smoltz and Kobe Bryant weren't speaking out. And so now they no. are. And so that's a difference and that's a positive change. The ship has really gotten a lot of steam forward. So to turn the ship around is going to require everybody. And I'm very happy to see you know, Project Play and the Aspen Institute and all of these wonderful organizations getting out there um, and finding the names. Kobe Bryant, John Smoltz, whatever, um, that does matter. People do respond to that, and there's a lot of data to support that as well, yes. and so that's good. Um, but I want, in my last chapter in, in the book, is the future of children's sports, and it has actual suggestions for parents, coaches, sport administrators, and researchers, okay, because it's going to take all of us to turn the ship around. But I want parents to know particularly how much power they have. Um, they have yes. the power of the purse, of course, of what they pay for or not, 
but they also have the, the power of the ask. Show me the data that says that my child needs to start playing baseball all year round at age 10. Show me the data. And there are none. So um, it, when parents start to question people who have a financial interest in saying what they are saying, then that's going to may, maybe have the people question themselves, maybe have the sport administrators question themselves, um, but also say, well, I, why should I believe you? When Kobe Bryant says the opposite or John Smoltz says the opposite, you know, maybe it's going to be that sort of, of conflict. But pushing back, saying, I'm not sure. I've heard that this isn't good for my child. Show me where, where you say that you can make my child an Olympian, of course, of course, or something like that. Coaches, I mean, you're in that. Uh, you're, there's a lot of wonderful coaching education and, and, and coaches training. Still, the overwhelming majority of children's coaches are volunteer parents. And yes. so, so trying to get organizations to make sure that volunteer coaches are educated about children's development, about educated about bringing fun, fun, fun to sport. That's the only thing that's going to keep children in sport. Um, skill is secondary. <laughs> so fun is going to be that. Um, uh, having coaches, uh, you basically you know, read the literature, take, take a couple of classes on coaching children, not coaching college kids. Uh, sport administrators, there's an entire section in my book on what they can and should be doing and which would not hurt their bottom line at all. Um, if you assure quality adult leadership, that's one of those things that's not going to hurt your bottom line. Mm -hmm. If you offer opportunities to athletes of all skill levels, not just elite athletes, you're doubling your bottom line. Right. Um, if you provide data about, or if you provide your goals and objectives right out you know, on, the, on the door frame and say, here are the data that show that we are uh, you know, increasing kids' interests in sport, uh, all of that, you know, program evaluation, um, adjusting schedules so that parents don't have to be the Uber drivers, uh, that, that you don't have to practice every day, you don't have to have games during uh, the dinner hour, for instance, um, providing dietary information, emphasizing sportsmanship, all these things that sport administrators who probably have the most control at this moment in time, uh, things that they can do. Uh, that will not hurt their bottom line, but could bring more kids into sport at lower competitive levels and just have fun with sport. And then, of course, the researchers. You know, I'm I'm in that category. Um, there's a lot of places, even though you know my book is full, very dense of the research that has happened to this point. Um, there are a lot of places where we could be pursuing things, and one of them, which is of interest to me, is um, the question of race and children's sport, and and our encouragement of particularly of African American kids um, to the exclusion of their encouragement for other things, and and then of course vice versa. Um, uh, and so there there's a lot of areas where. There are untapped variables that I think um, we should be looking into as well of how our country tends to um, push sport to and away from certain certain kids. Yeah, that that yeah, that's one that uh, yeah I, I don't see to address very often. I think it, there's sort of a little bit of that with the look at the socioeconomic breakdown. Um, right, which, right. At some point, also kind of bleeds into that area as well. Uh, in, in doing mm -hmm. that, and, and that's certainly an issue well, yeah. that with the early specialization and finding um, coaches who are going to 
you know, I, I, I find it pretty funny when the 11-year-old is going to a strength conditioning class at some place, and I go, 11? Oh, yeah. Right. Right. Well, they don't even have the testosterone to build the muscle. You yeah. know, I mean, it's so it's so ridiculous um, that you had actually posted on your newsletter an article written um, in the Atlantic about American meritocracy killing youth sports and talked about um, socioeconomic status. And, and mm -hmm. we're, we're, we're asking the people, basically middle class and upper class, we're, we're siphoning those kids off and giving them extra training and things like that. And we're leaving everyone else behind. And of course, in America, um, race and socioeconomic status is confounded. And yes. so if you're talking about socioeconomic status, you're talking about race and ethnicity as well. And so um, there's a lot of places where we could be doing better for all of our kids. And that's that's one of them that hasn't been tapped um, yeah. as much. Yeah. What bothered me about the Tawa article was that it really wasn't talking about meritocracy, because meritocracy to me is, you know, if you're good, you'll get promoted or you'll, you know, right, you'll right. get more awards and stuff. But it's like, no, this was about buying access. There's there's nothing meritocracy yes. about that, because if it were a meritocracy yeah. and you saw the eight-year-old is really good at tennis. Well, it wouldn't matter if they can afford it or not. They would get the opportunity to do it, and and a lot and there are cases mm -hmm. where that happens, where you know organizations mm -hmm. will have scholarships and not the right word for it, not academic, right. but they'll have right. you know grants and stuff to let. Well, you know, we want these kids to come in and and do this. Uh, you know, the local uh, running uh, youth running group uh, that I, I'm on the board of, to be fully disclosure, mm -hmm. Land Sharks, makes wants every kid to have the opportunity, so they raise funds so that they can offset the cost so that it, you know, parents who want their kids to join the program can do so. And and there's a mm -hmm. lot of places out there who do wonderful stuff like that. And I think we should be promoting them as much as kind of knocking this other part too, because there are opportunities out there mm -hmm. uh, for folks. But, but maybe it's not the most glamorous looking place. The boys and girls clubs that I've been into are, right. you know, not, it's, not everything's bright, shiny, and new like the, you know, the place down the street mm -hmm. that's trying to get, you know, a hundred bucks a month out of your kid or out of you. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, cool. Well, I want to kind of close, coming to the end here. I do want to wrap up something, and uh, again, I'll put a link to the information on uh, your book and how to how to get it as well. Uh, anything you want to bring up that I didn't ask you about? Some something you're really uh, passionate about and want to make sure that you know the coach educators and and their administrators who who listen to this, you know what you would uh, what you would want to share with them. Well, I think um, actually you, you did a wonderful job, Sam, of of gathering across the whole a, a whole book of all the the wonderful points um, that can be made from from the research in this area. Um, but I think for both parents and coaches, and and most people are both at some point. Uh, I think what I want to convey to some of them is that your intuition is right. What's happening on the ground here? All the myths that be, are being promoted and the over organization, yeah, that's problematic. Your intuition is right, that this isn't the way it was when I was a kid, and that doesn't make it good or bad, but the data show that what we're doing is, is not necessarily healthy for, for our children. And so you know, whether it's uh, being promoted from my book or, or you know, just looking at the research, tens of thousands of data points 
don't lie. You know, an anecdote yeah. is an anecdote. And I don't, I'm not going to say, oh, this is true because Kobe Bryant says so. Absolutely not. Um, but tens of thousands of data points don't lie. And so right. that's the professional research is um, supporting a lot of parents and coaches' intuition that this is not only not good, but actually bad for um, kids' psychological and physiological development. So, um, you know, I think that's, that's really one of the things that has, has come up over the years that I've been writing this book is that people have said, you know, I feel in my gut that this isn't right, or this coach said this, and, and I, I'd like to support that, that negative intuition that people have had um, actually is supported by data. Yeah, yeah I find it interesting you say that because, it, you know, there, there's a constant or, you know, pretty regular, you know, little meme thing that pops up from time to time about how, uh, you know, I, I rode in cars without seat belts for, I don't know, many years. Right, right. I, uh, I rode in the back of pickup trucks. I, you know, I, I did the jungle gym where, you know, we were eight feet off the ground and, uh, and, and, you know, I survived all that, and, mm-hmm. you know, it's, I see that a lot of times, and, and it's really funny because the thing I thought of was, was, but the way we played sports was not the way that you're, that people are having their kids play sports now, but, you know, we right. turned out okay. So why is it that we're looking at, yeah. you know, not wearing a seatbelt, we made it okay, and now the truth is a lot of people didn't make it, but, you know. And right. I think that's, I think that's, that's the, the difference, and I think yeah. that's… Right. Uh, what 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 is a small thing is a seatbelt is actually a small thing that has yes. uh, that has given us enormous health and safety in cars. You know, and there yes. were, as you know, people died by going through windshields and things like that. And so that small change that didn't cost anyone's restriction or lack of creativity or moral development <laughs> or leadership skills or anything. Just that little click was a really small thing, and it has an, an enormous payout. Right. This thing that we're talking about, this change, um, is a really big thing with no positive payout. And so I think yeah. when, when people say, you know, I survived a, a, you know, a lack of seatbelts, well, as you know, not everyone did. Right. Um, and so that's, that's very much worth the, the second and a half of inconvenience um, of putting that across your lap. And, and yet this thing that we're talking about, this monolith that is um, organized children's sports, is, you know, what, what was the quote? $17 billion in that article, $17 billion industry. That's, you know, that's really big, and the payout, uh, we're not seeing it. Yeah. Well, and if, if anything, there may be, there looks like there's lots of negative payouts to this. So the, the kids, right. you know, aren't surviving this. They're, they're dropping out and, um, and right. having bad experiences, in which case, you know, there, there are potential ties to that with, you know, obesity later on because you're not active. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, mm-hmm. there's a social aspect as an adult of playing in sports leagues. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you haven't, you know, tried some sort of sport, then you may never want to go join the, you know, adult soccer league um, because you've never right. done a sport where there's lateral movement involved or a ball involved or things like that. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so it narrows the world that that person can go into and, and maybe even yeah. narrows that kid's world down because if I didn't, you know, if I didn't play something or know something about it, maybe I don't take my kids or ever expose them to it. And um, 
And, right. And, one of the great things I'll say about many of my colleagues in the Olympic world is that we're in the sports world, so we have exposure to so many sports that I see a lot of my colleagues who have kids who are exposing them to sports because they take them to something because, you know, hey, I, I know somebody who works in that sport. Let's go watch, you know, bike racing at the velodrome. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. because they know about it for one thing and uh, with it. So I think that exposure part is, is pretty important uh, with that. Right. We're cool. And just to have that fun associated with that yes. exposure. If your yes. only exposure was being yelled at by a coach when you were eight, <laughs> um, or being given told to told to run drills um, as a punishment, you know, if that's if that was your exposure, not surprisingly, you're not going to go back to sport for fun. You know, um, but if it was fun, even if you weren't the best on your team, even if you didn't go on to make varsity in high school, but you really loved basketball and it was fun, yeah. and that you go to the Y and you play with the play with the guys, no one yelled at you, no one. You know? So, so it's about it's a, it's not about making Olympians. They'll find their way. You know, yes. their genes and their work Despite ethic us. will find yes. their way. This is right. This is about this is about keeping the American children interested in activity and sport and play and learning the things that you can learn from sport um, and organizing yourself. Well, it's I, I want to go on this about the coach, you know, yelling at you and stuff. I I, I read an essay a long time ago. Sorry, I can't remember who wrote it. Uh, talking about why kids are attracted to video games, and this, one of the points that this person suggested as as a reason is there are no adults yelling at them about you got killed. Now I want you to do 50 push-ups and stuff. The, right. the kids are there, and they okay. I reset the game and I try something else. I go through that door, um, and this time I looked right and I got killed. So next time I'm look left, and and they're learning mm-hmm. on their own, which you know that gift of failure right. thing. It, I encourage everybody to go back right. and listen to Jessica Leahy, my interview with her, talking about it is great, and there's no adult yelling at them. There may be somebody right. online that they ask, hey, I need some help, but they're also the ones initiating that question on there. Mm-hmm. And um, and now that could be an 8-year-old or it could be a you know 38-year-old. You don't know who it is necessarily, but right. there's that world. Right. And then more in the sports thing, I saw a piece over Thanksgiving on, on a channel talking about the 80s. And I, it may have been CNN, but I think it was another channel. But Tony Hawk, the skateboarder, talks about there were no adults around. You know, we were trying right. tricks out, and we were just trying them out. And who could do the best trick? Mm-hmm. Oh, he did that. Oh, cool. Let me see if I can do a you know 360. He did right. a 270. And there were no, there was nobody there coaching them how to do it. They they probably right. helped each other out a little bit. And hey, you know. You, need to come in and do this or something like that or when I do it or they're just watching over and over and there's only coaching the skateboarder on how to do that trick and they're Mm -hmm. just trying to one-up each other and uh and do that and it comes from within yeah it It, comes from within I think that's that's where all success in sport Mm -hmm. exactly well and you mentioned the extrinsic stuff I had made a note here um one of the people I'm trying to get on for a future podcast is Daniel Peake. And um, mm-hmm. he's written a book about uh, about when you put an extrinsic value on something, it, it, right. it sucks the fun right out of it, and actually you're less likely to get yeah. someone to do it. If your kid loves mowing yep. the yard, which honestly I did as a kid. I don't know what it was about mowing mm-hmm. the yard that I love to do. <laughs> and at some point in 
time, my dad said, well, I'll, I'll pay you to do this. And I remember it became a chore then. Right, and right, exactly. It, nothing about the activity changed. It was still mowing the lawn. Right. But now that I was getting uh, the dollar, two dollars he gave me mm-hmm. you know, a long time ago, it was a lot of money. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, all of a sudden it became a chore and work, and I was grumbling about not wanting to go out and do it. And, you know, he probably would have been better off just, you know, let me mow the grass and every now and then just give me two bucks for, hey, just here's two dollars, mm-hmm. go to the movie kind of thing. And, and not tying it to right, that at right. all, even if in his mind exactly. and, uh, those rewards is, are interesting. Well, good. All right. And well, that's, then that's exactly what we do, yeah. yeah. With, with, with ribbons and trophies and participation ribbons, well, fun is the reward for participation. Yeah. You've already gotten it. <laughs> the ribbon is not. <laughs> and that makes you second guess as a child, why am I doing this? I'm doing yeah. it for the ribbon and the trophy. Yeah. You know, and that's, yeah, it's the kiss of death for, for intrinsic motivation. And, and the same research applies to grades, too. If you start giving kids those external rewards mm-hmm. for grades, it, 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 sometimes yep. it seems to have a rebound effect, a negative effect on that. Right. Yeah, and well, that actually, I did mention one article um, in my book about that, that that goes into adulthood. Um, that when yeah. you when you reward mater- material, they call it material parenting. When you reward for sport or music or grades with something concrete, then that kid expects as an adult that happiness is linked to stuff, and yeah. um, that's a really interesting finding as well. Oh, that is a good one. Yeah, linked to stuff. Well, I, I said a few minutes ago that uh, we were wrapping something, and then we went about like eight more minutes on that. But I enjoyed right. that. And at the end of the day, as long as you Always and I enjoyed it. Always fun talking to you, Sam. I, I, and it has been fun. We need to, you know, uh, we need to link up more often for sure uh, on this. So absolutely. Uh, yeah. Well, with that, I'm going to I'm going to bring this one to a close. And again, uh, thanks, Christy. And I uh, suggest. You know, everyone go check out by the adulteration of children's sports. Uh, again, links will be in the show note to the uh, discount flyer so that you have that code. And uh, hopefully, maybe we'll see you out at the USCC conference in, in June if uh, you can get away for a little bit and come out and visit us. That would be great. Excellent. Yep. And once again, thank you for your time. And everyone, uh, have a good rest of your day. Thanks. Hey, and once again, thanks for joining us on this audio podcast. I want to uh, put a shout out to Lee Rosevear, who provided the music for the uh, intro as well as for this credit roll. So thank you, and good luck in your coaching.